Well, you came on a good, good morning. You came on a good morning, so uh, you're going to be uh, you're going to be pleasantly surprised. So, uh, my name is Jeffrey Cranford, and I'm the senior pastor here at Church at the Red Door. And uh, we're going to do a little bit of family business right after I pray, and then I'm going to give you a little introduction and talk to you just a little bit. And uh, you're in for a morning. You are in for a morning. You're going to, I think, maybe get the for the maybe for the first time, some of you. Uh, part of the real global heart for Church at the Red Door and how we think outside the boundaries of the Coachella Valley. Many of you know already because you are already probably 80% of you have other homes and this is where you are just for a period of time. You know we have a national emphasis but we have a global emphasis as well. And so this morning's really this is going to be on display for you to see and I'm, we're excited to share this with you and some of you will know him. But first of all, first things first, let me pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the uh, profound privilege to meet at a facility like uh, UCR and what a blessing this has been for us as we've launched in this last year. And Lord, we, uh, we just pray, we do, we pray a blessing over this literal facility. And uh, Lord, we, but the most thing, biggest thing we're looking for this morning is the manifestation of your spirit. Lord, we're asking that the Holy Spirit come and be with us and give us insight and discernment and wisdom, and as we've been discussing, an understanding of the seasons and the times, not just of our individual lives, not even the collective lives of our church, or even as a nation, but globally, what are you doing in the earth at this season, at this time? Lord, we want to be like the tribe of Issachar, who understood what uh, the signs of the times and what, uh, what Israel should do, and we're, that's going to have a particular uh, profundi- profundity for us this morning. So, Lord, be with us. Uh, open your word to our eyes in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, before we do this, I told you I was going to give you, and this will be brief, I was going to give you an update on where we are in terms of facilities. Now, some of you, if you haven't been here for a while or you don't know, we've been here about a, about a year and four months now. We're going on our fourth month. And as you can see, we're starting to kind of grow out. We can't meet here. Uh, we don't know how long we're going to be able to meet here. We have you know, we kind of have a little bit of foresight, but it's, we don't know how sustainable it is. We're just not sure. So we've begun the process. We actually began the process probably a year ago to try to determine where we might be able to park our camper for longer than just a year or two and maybe even get a permanent facility. And I will let you know that we did make an offer on a piece of property uh, a little over a week ago. And we've gotten a little bit of, bit of feedback. It's been slow. And so we'll keep you updated. But there, if, if this happens, we will actually have a piece of ground at some point. And we're hoping it's this piece of property. We really believe it's strategically located. Some of you are going to be happy. Some of you may have to drive five minutes further. Uh, but can I just tell you, there's real strategy in this particular piece of property. And, and this is the most important part, it will give us visibility potentially to be here forever. Rather than having to go from place and then move to the next place and the next place and the next place, this actually could be it. This could be it. And so that's our prayer. And so uh, would you pray? There's a family that's uh, exploring the offer now. A family owns the property. Would you just pray for this family? In fact, let's just do it real quick. Lord, we just as a congregation, we pray for this precious family that owns this piece of property. Lord, would you move on their hearts to find a fair and reasonable price, Lord, and, that, and our ability then to execute on that. And would you do that, Lord? Would you just... Would you do something special in this family's life? Lord, we want to be where you want us to be, and we know nothing can keep you away from where you 
have planned for us to be even before the foundations of the earth. And we ask those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I will tell you uh, that we've had a few of you begin to already give to the building fund, of which we are appreciative. And if it's $100 or $500, but I will tell you that we did have another million-dollar commitment in the last few weeks. Yeah. <laughs> which will scale in. So this becomes a little bit more, you know, exciting. And I tell you, if we get a piece of property and we start putting up uh, the 3D images of uh, what the architects are coming up and we have those playing each week, I think each one of you will maybe feel a little bit more compelled uh, towards, uh, well, God could really do this and he really can and we're completely and utterly reliant on him. I don't know where we're going to get the rest of it. I don't know how we're going to do it, but hey, I, I, we're on a need-to-know basis, aren't we? And I don't need to know, evidently, because I don't know yet, so, all right? Well, now I want, to, I want to take you in your Bibles real quick. I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 11, and before I introduce one of my dear, dear friends and his compatriot becoming one of my dear friends... Um, Isaiah chapter 11, let me just say straight up, anytime you go back to the prophets and you're talking about future and fulfillment, other than some of the specific messianic prophecies, like Isaiah 53, where Jesus clearly, it's a picture of Jesus, and there's really uh, very little, if any, argument at all about, uh, in the Christian community, whether that applied to Jesus. When you start talking about things that happened after the time of Jesus, you're always going to get into some waters that not all theologians agree upon. What was Isaiah seeing here in Isaiah 11? Uh, first of all, the first part of Isaiah chapter 11 talks about just uh, this is the knowledge is going to cover the earth. It's going to be an extraordinary time. Many people take this particular prophecy and they push it on into the time that Jesus comes back, literally comes back in physical body. Some of you may have read that and seen that in this particular passage. I'll just tell you straight up, I don't. That doesn't mean I'm right. I just don't see it, and I'll tell you why. There's a, there's a picture here as we see here in Isaiah chapter 11, <clears throat> verse 10. It says, in that, in that day, and of course that day, anytime you're talking about future days, you're really talking the last days really started at the time of the Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out and the church was born. For the last 2,000 years, we are in the last days. So don't just think of last days as some future, future event. We're in the last days. We're in, some people will call it the church age. It will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the people, and his resting place will be glorious. And then verse 11, catch this. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand, the remnant of his people who will remain. And then he names all the various nations, Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, all these various nations that the Jewish people are going to come back. He's going to regather them once again. And the direct context here is the nation of Israel. Now, I don't know what your background is. Some of you may, uh, I know what, one of the beautiful things about Church of the Red Door is that we have many denominational backgrounds. And some of you uh, may have learned or studied or seen Israel's coming back to Israel uh, specifically their literal return, which happened in 1948, is being something incidental to God's plans and not something specific and not a fulfillment of Scripture. 700 times in the Old Testament it talks about God restoring His people back to the land of Israel. And if you don't read that literally, then you have two issues. Number one, why seven times with just a figurative language? And number two, and probably more significant, I don't know, I might have been in that camp prior to May 15th of 1948. 
But I'm no longer in that camp because over half of the Jewish people living on the planet, maybe 13 and a half million identify as Jews. It's hard to know exactly who's Jewish and who's not because of intermarriage. Roughly 13 and a half million live on the planet and over half of those 13.5 are now back in the nation of Israel. Most through the process of persecution and challenges uh, from and not the least of which was the Holocaust which really precipitated the nation of Israel being born into existence again. I will tell you right now that Church at the Red Door is, uh, stands firmly on the belief that God has established the nation of Israel in his time and in this season and in some of your lifetimes. You saw the birthing of the nation of Israel as a nation again. Do you realize how powerfully strange that is? There's never been a people who've lost their land and even within a matter of a hundred years regained it. And God said they would come back and be regathered a second time. It's bizarre, isn't it? And regain their language that had been lost for years. Imagine the Hebrew language lost for thousands of years in terms of national identity and language. And through the diaspora, Jewish people, just as God, by the way, had told Moses from the beginning that I'm going to scatter them all over the face of the planet because he knew in advance that they would fail in their ultimate mission. And yet, did they fail? No, they brought in and their calling was to bring in the Messiah. If you're not Jewish here this morning, I know we have many Jewish friends with, with us, but if you're not Jewish, you've been a recipient of the mediatorial role that Israel played to bring in the Messiah. Now, as a nation, you could say they rejected, but not all Jewish people rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and you have to understand that. So if you flip forward real quickly to chapter 12, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up. We're going to watch a, a video and we've got some, uh, we've got, we're in high cotton today. We, we have with us, in my estimation, uh, one of the most significant things that's going in God's economy these days, and it's, it's powerful. Now, does God, is he, uh, does God love the Jewish people more? No, but he did make a covenant with the house of, with the house of uh, Judah, and, and you have to understand, the tribe of Judah, I should say, and the house of Israel, you have to understand that we have benefited, if you're a non-Jew here today, we have benefited through them being a light to the nations. Now, who is them? The believing Jewish community early on. Who wrote your New Testament? Who wrote your Old Testament? Well, God wrote it through the vehicle of the Jewish people, and they have prayed, paid a heavy price mediatorially to make that happen. Now, verse 12, uh, chapter 12, just look at this real quick. It says, then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, for you were angry with me and your anger is turned away and now you comfort me. But behold, God is my salvation. Notice what the Jew, this is about the nation of Israel. They're going to be saying, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw, now catch this, from the springs of salvation. You know, when Jesus emerged in John chapter 4, for instance, the woman at the well, or John chapter 7, when he's saying, look, drink from this water. If you're thirsty, all you who are thirsty, at one of the feasts, he came and said, all you who are thirsty, you can drink. And he's saying, drink of me. Drink of the reality of who I am. I am the truth, and I'm going to give you an insight, and my burden, the way I'm going to interpret Everything that's been written, my burden is easy, and the yoke that I have, no longer you can be under the yoke of your rabbis. I'm going to give you a new understanding of how you get to your heavenly Father, and it's going to be through the blood. Hebrews 9.22 is through the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. This is good news for us. 
unless you're an Orthodox Jew here and you're going through all the protocol and you still believe that through the law is the way to God. So this language is so powerful. And then finally in verse 6, cry aloud, shout for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Now some people put this off into a future reality. Can I tell you right now that Jesus is becoming powerfully evident in the Middle East in general, and Arabs may talk about this in a minute, and even more specifically in Israel, in your lifetime. Most people say Israel rejects Jesus and has rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and God's not interested in Israel. Let me just tell you, right here, Jesus becomes manifest in the presence of Israel. Now, I've spent a lot of time in Israel, and some of you have been with me as we've been over there, and I will tell you straight up that I do not believe that there is a, a particular ministry in Israel right now having any more influence or impact than the very college that we're going to see the president this morning who comes to us, and we have both Arabs, 30%, and Jewish men and women from around the world who are now studying at Israel College of the Bible and being trained to take the gospel into Israel. Can you imagine that? In your lifetime. There's close to 300 congregations now in Israel. Much of that due to the benefit that's been given them by a college that teaches in Hebrew. Catch that? The only Bible college in the world who speak, who teaches the college in Hebrew and to Arabs and to Jews. And the impact, and I don't have time to go into it, but the impact was always going to be that this was going to be such a profound movement that it was going to begin to spread from Israel like it did 2,000 years ago. You're going to gather them again, and they give them a new heart, and then the gospel is going to begin to spread again from Israel. That's the way I read the prophets, and that's what I see happening, even into the Middle East. I want to play now for you a clip uh, that just recently went up on the website, uh, imetmessiah.com, and then we'll give you that. And next week, I'm going to have these incredible brochures of which I failed to bring this morning because I didn't even know why he sent them to me, to be honest with you. That's how slow I am. But anyway, I'm going to bring these brochures. We're going to pass them out to both, uh, both services, and all of you are going to have more information and know how to go and be able to look at what's going on here. But look at this. You want to talk about impact into the Middle East? This is the issue of our day. The Middle East is the issue of our day. Do you want to see what God's doing through Israel College of the Bible, even beyond the ethnic borders of Israel? Watch with me. A crowd started to gather. The men were chanting in Arabic. Allah Akbar. Allah Akbar. And my father and I, as I was holding his hand, were pushed to the front of this crowd. In the center of this crowd was an Arabic woman dressed just like this. And she was tied up and she was sitting on a box. Next to her was an Arabic man and he did a traditional Islamic prayer on the floor. And he got up from the floor, and from his side, he pulled out this very long golden sword, and he beheaded the woman. My legs are shaking, and my heart is going fast. And my father said, if you don't listen to the teachings we're instilling in your life, this will happen to you one day. I was born and raised in a small country by the name of Kuwait. 
a community of 98% Muslim population. Two of my uncles are imams, and one is president of a mosque, where I would hear the call to prayer five times a day. As a Muslim, the word Yahudi, which means Jew, was instilled in me as a bad word, as a cuss word. Yahudis should not exist. They should be killed. And I never thought to question, why would I hate them? I never met Jewish people in my life. They never did anything to harm my family. I just hated them. Just the word brought hatred in my heart. It's very important to learn the Quran and the Hadith and even memorize it in Arabic. I even entered a competition where you recite a long chapter in front of Islamic leaders and teachers. And I came second place. I thought I did a good job. But my father said, no, that's not good enough. Most of my life for me, it was alone by myself, broken person, in need of love for my family, but I never received it from them. I tried to experience this love from Creator God, from Allah. In my prayer times, I lifted up my hands and I cried out to Allah for help. Please have my father stop beating my mother. Please have my father stop beating me. But no help came. God is not a personable God to Muslims. God doesn't say, I love you. Saddam Hussein horses came in the middle of the night and invaded the small country of Kuwait. And then they came to my city and they destroyed property and they looted people's home and they stole possessions and they killed the men and they raped the women. Then we were granted asylum status to stay in the US. My grandmother suddenly got very sick. She had a heart attack and she went to the hospital. And two days later, she passed away. I was devastated because I lost my best friend. And this lady approached me and asked me if I was okay. And I said, no, Paula, my grandmother died. And I just started to cry again. At that moment, I was hurting so much. Only crying helped. And Paula came to me and put her arms around me. And she gave me a hug. And then she asked me a question. Would you like to go to church with me? When I walked into this church, I experienced love from these people and acceptance from these people like I've never before. Fellowshipping together, they were men and women together. They didn't have to be separate. No one was judging each other. And they knew I was Muslim. They were so friendly to me themselves, accepting of me and loving of me. And that was really surprising to me. And for the first time in my life, I heard a message from the Bible. I started reading the message about Yeshua. When he walked into the synagogue, he was given a scroll from Prophet Isaiah, and he opened the scroll and he started reading that scripture. That the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the broken heart, and to proclaim liberty to the captive, and freedom of sight to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. First time I heard these words of freedom and healing and liberty. I'm desperate to be freed from bondage. I was held captive in Islam and I wanted to be freed from that. I was blinded with so much hatred in my heart. The darkness broke from my eyes. The veil came off my heart. 
I knew the decision I was making to leave Islam is a big decision. By Sharia law, Islamic law, it is death penalty. But I'm desperate to know a living God. In that day, I gave my life to becoming a follower of Jesus. This is the God of Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the nation of Israel is God's heartbeat. And I said, God, forgive me. I did not know I hated your people. I love the Jewish people because it's their God, their Messiah that I'm following. And he told me to love them. I never knew what happened to the six million Jews that died. I never heard that in Kuwait in history. Now that I met Holocaust survivors, I know their story. And I shared my story with them. Your God, your Messiah, changed my heart, giving his life for me so I can have life everlasting. He rescued me. He saved me. He came and brought joy in my life again. And I'm a blessed woman. And I start crying, and they start crying. And we are able to relate to each other, and they embrace me, and they love me, and they experience some healing, I believe, when they hear my story. It is a privilege to have that in my life. I am one for Israel. This will be one of the central pieces of Church at the Red Door, and our global missions will be a forever partnership with One for Israel. Um, it's effective. Jesus said to be shrewd, to be innocent, but to be shrewd. And I think this is the best way to get the gospel into the Middle East. Would you please welcome the president of One for Israel, Dr. Erez Sharif. Shalom, everyone. It's a great blessing to be with you. I'm old generation, so I actually have a computer and not an iPad or something, so forgive me for that. Um, it's great to be with you here and uh, see a lot of friends that I've met before and also um, meet new people. It's, uh, I was telling Jeffrey, it's, it's a real joy to come to the church at the Red Door, and there is a buzz in the air coming in, so it's a very, very positive thing. Very excited for... Uh, what God is doing in your midst. You know, you, you may ask yourself, why do we, um, I mean, you see a Jewish guy standing here with you, and why do we show you a video of a Muslim woman that comes to know, comes to, to know the Lord, Yeshua, Jesus? And uh, the answer is, you know, part of the reconciliation that God is doing also includes the sons of Isaac, sons and daughters of Isaac and Ishmael. And as Jeffrey told you, um, the heart of what we do in Israel is to train up the many, many, many people that come to know the Lord, both Jewish and Arab. So we do all the traditional things that a college or a seminary would do, but we also kind of, the reason we get up in the morning is to tell our people about the Lord, about Yeshua. Um, some of you are familiar with my personal story. I did not grow up in a family that uh, believes in, uh, in Jesus. I have grown up in a traditional Jewish family in Israel. 
has not heard anything about the Lord and heard the gospel, heard the good news that as people we can be forgiven of our sins, not just the thing we did, but our tendency to walk away from God. And um, as I started looking into this, you know, the, the people that told me this were Gentile Christians. And they, I think, unknowingly fulfilled one of the greatest missions that the church has, that is often overlooked. And Paul is talking about it. He's, uh, Jesus is talking about it. We see that in the, I mean, from the days of Abraham. And there's different la- types of language describing it in the Bible. Anything from, the, I'm not ashamed of, Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, of the Messiah. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. To the Jew first and also to the non-Jew, to the Gentile. That's one mention. In another place, Paul, I mean, actually close to that, later on in the book of Romans, Paul is saying that we as the followers of Christ, and particularly the Gentile church, one of the main missional missions is to cause the Jewish people to jealousy. Now, what does that even mean and how do you do that? I can tell you how that happened in my life. When I heard about this term of personal relationship with God, it's quite, I have to tell you, for a Jewish person, a very strange concept. Maybe God had something to do with our people thousands of years ago. But personal relationship with the creator of the universe, is that even possible? Is he even interested? And as I started reading more and hearing more, and, and particularly what got me jealous was that I saw in the life of those Christians that they talk to God, they pray to God in a personal way. It was very different, you know, when, when for most Jewish people at least, when I had my bar mitzvah, I mean, that's the last time I prayed before that time. And, you know, we're given a page. There's a prayer book. And you read the prayers from a book. Now, they're very beautiful, but when you're given, you're unfamiliar and you're given it to read, it's quite an impersonal. So... It was really strange for me. Says those people, they really know God, and what's even more annoying, they know my God type of thing, and I don't. And what was even more shocking to me was that some of those people were familiar with not just the New Testament, which I know very little about. But I understood this was the book of the Christians, but they were even more familiar than I was in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. And I asked them, well, why do you guys? Read the Old Testament. I mean, that's our book type thing. And uh, they told me, well, you know, there's no sense to the New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament. And so that was, again, one of the things that have caused me to have more interest, to jealousy. And eventually I've become a follower of the Messiah. Uh, And thought I was, uh, some of you heard this before, but I honestly thought I was the first and only Jewish person to make the discovery that Jesus is the Messiah since the time of Paul. I was very excited. I went home, told my parents, told my friends, and everybody thought I lost my mind. I was brainwashed. At that time, this is 26 years ago, and at that time I found out to my great joy that I was not the only follower of Jesus in Israel or in the world not the Jewish one, uh, not the only Jewish one. Uh, at that time, there were maybe 30 congregations, uh, churches of Messianic Jews in the country of Israel. And that number, as Jeffrey has mentioned, has grown 
pretty dramatically from 30 to 300 in these last 25, 26 years. Um, some similar growth, not to that degree, but similar growth has also occurred among our Arab brothers and sisters. Now, you know, those kind of videos, and I'm, I'm, with that I'm going to carry on, but just to tell you, this video that you watched was produced in Israel. This wonderful Kuwaiti sister is the first of a series of testimonials of Muslims that have come to know the Lord. And when Jesus changed their hearts, one thing that they found that was also changed is that they started loving the Jewish people. And uh, I had the privilege in last, um, last year to meet many, many, many Muslim background believers from all over the Arab world and uh, the Muslim world. And one by one by one, they came to me, they said, you know, we, we grew up on absolute hatred to the Jewish people. We never met a Jew, but we, 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 we learned that you are Allah's hated. But when we met Jesus and we realized that the Allah of the Quran is very, very, very different, and it's not, he's not the same as the God of the Bible, we've also realized that we've been lied to about the Jewish people. Now, um, so, you know, this series, this new series is geared um, to cause Jewish people to jealousy. It's not just to share the testimony of a Muslim. That's part of it. And um, that definitely perks up the interest in Israel. Um, now, you know, this video has been viewed in last week. It went out only, I mean, we posted it online only a week ago, and it was viewed more than two million times. That's uh, definitely going viral. <laughs> Praise God. Now, you know, um, now a lot of you have been to Israel. I think there's a, a, lar a relatively large, large group that's coming with uh, uh, Pastor Jeffrey in uh, December, on November, December. So those of you that have been to Israel know that, um, you know, what Israelis love to do the most is surf social networks on their smartphones. Uh, interestingly enough, people don't think about it. If you've not been to Israel, you're probably thinking camels, you know, sand, uh, that kind of a thing. Uh, the truth of the matter, there's some of that, but um, actually, actually, our, our desert actually looks a lot like this desert. This is one reason I like to come here. But, um, but most Israelis are very, very connected to their smartphones. I mean, if you can believe it or not, international secular research indicates that Israelis use their smartphones 60% more, I mean, the average Israeli, 60% more per day than the average American. That's pretty scary. But the point is, the moral of this for us has been that we need to take the message, the message of the gospel that is not largely available. I told you, I was 22 before I even heard about Jesus. Although I was in Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee many, many times throughout my life, never heard anything about Jesus. Never seen a New Testament, never met a Christian person. So now we get up in the morning to tell our people about the Lord. And this has been a major, major, major vehicle. Uh, our, the, the compounded number of all those videos in the last two and a half years has been 50 million views. 50 million. Oh, 55 actually by now. I'm sorry. They updated me a few days ago. So in Israel, in all of Israel, as Jeffrey, well, as Jeffrey was saying, in, in the entire world, there are 13 and a half million Jews. In Israel, about 7 million. 
So the majority, there's more Jewish people residing in Israel today than in the rest of the world combined. Something that did not happen since the time of Christ. Now, why am I telling you in this? And I think the, the question that besides, I mean, maybe that's interesting to you, but I think the question that I want to raise, and I, I hope some of you are asking this in your mind, is uh, this is great. This is really wonderful. But why should we in, you know, Palm Desert, California, uh, really care? And uh, here is my answer in a nutshell, in one sentence. Because, because you should care, because it's not about Israel, it's about the God of Israel. And you know, when, uh, when I was a, a young believer in Christ, I was asked to teach a class of um, children. They were seven years old. I was petrified. I didn't know what to do. I mean, I wanted to serve the children, but you know, I didn't have children of my own. I didn't know how you talk to children. I didn't know how to do it. So the uh, lady that was kind of responsible for the Sunday school told me, don't worry, I got this. I have this high-tech device that will help you get the story with the children. I said, oh, I was excited. I said, well, what it is? So she gave me a flannel graph. Remember those flannel graphs? That you put different, it's a board of flannel and you put different figures made out of cloth to kind of illustrate the story. And I'm telling you this because in a lot of ways, Israel is God's flannel graph. And as Jeffrey was saying, he was quoting a verse that I love a lot that says that the sons of Issachar, one of the 12 tribes, their greatest quality was that they understood the times and therefore they knew what they needed to do. And in the scriptures, we see that both in the Hebrew Bible, but also in the New Testament, several times, Paul, the apostle, is imploring us, be understanding of the times. And I want to claim before you today that we live, and I think Jeffrey referred to it, we live in historical times. I mean, every time is a historical time, but in our day and age, we are able to see what would have been absolutely unfathomable, unthinkable, even to believers in Jesus throughout the last 2,000 years. You know, passages like we've read today, and we're going to read a couple more, that talk about the fact that God's going to bring the Jews back a second time. And if we would have shown it to the great men and women of faith throughout church history and we say, well, look at those passages. What do you say? What do you think? I mean, look at the Jews. It doesn't look like it's ever going to happen. And they would say, well, if God said it, he means it. However, it really does seem unthinkable. Throughout the last 2,000 years, you know, the Jewish people are dispersed, no land. As Jeffrey said, no language. Hebrew is a dead language for 1,500 years. And in most places, the Jews are persecuted heavily. So it just not, doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't look like it's ever going to happen. And yet we get to live in a day and an age. You know, this year, in, in uh, April of this year, the young state of Israel, which is, by the way, Israel is not a country. I mean, as, as a state, as a country, we're not. Our government is not a government that seeks to walk after God. We're not. However, in accordance to what God had said, he brought us, you know, my families, my family from both sides. I mean, my dad's side, they came from Europe. My mom's side, they came from Babylon. They were actually in Babylon in Iraq for 2,500 years. They didn't plan on coming back, but God has literally caused my grandparents and great-grandparents to come back to Israel. So as far as I'm concerned, I was born there, so I... You know, never thought about it twice. But that's what I mean, historical times. Well, I do want to share a couple of passages of scripture with you 
that illustrate that and, and other points relating to our, our walk after the Lord and the times we're living in. So I'd like to start, if you will, in Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet Zechariah in chapter 3. The prophet Zechariah is called in Jewish tradition as the, he's called the summary of all the prophets because he takes different themes from uh, prophets that were before him and he summarizes them, uh, compacts them, brings it together, gives it additional meaning. And he does that in chapter 3 as well. Uh, this chapter is part of a night that was full of visions for this, uh, for Zechariah was a young man when he was given those visions. And on chapter 3, Zechariah, we're only going to read from uh, three verses, from verse 8 to verse 10. But just before that, Zechariah sees a vision of a man named Joshua. Joshua, son of Josedek. And this Joshua is the high priest of the time. The high priest under the Mosaic Covenant is the highest spiritual authority, the most, um, you know, and he, he, um, he's not just a person, a father and a husband and, and a person, but he also represents, as the high priest, he represents the nation before God. And if you remember the descriptions in the, in the Old Testament, so the high priest has the names of the tribes of Israel on his shoulders and on his heart on a breastplate symbolic to the fact that he's not just his own man, but he represents the nation. So he sees Joshua, the high priest, is with filthy, filthy clothes, and Satan is standing and accusing him. We're not told exactly what he's accused of, but basically, you know, Satan is claiming against Joshua what he's saying against all of us. So he says to God, I mean, look at him. This is the guy, that, this is the spiritual authority, this is the guy that you give spiritual significance to? He's representing your people. I mean, look at your people. They're, they're, they're dirty, they're sinful, they're filthy, their thoughts are not clean, their actions are not clean. How can you choose them? How can you accept them? And isn't that exactly what Satan is claiming against each one of us over and over again? But this chapter has a great encouragement. We're not going to read those verses, but you should read them at home because God rebukes Satan two times and he cleanses the high priest Joshua and he gives him uh, a new garment he gives him he renews his uh, clean outfit as the high priest and with that we come to verse 8 hear O Joshua the high priest you and your companions who sit before you for they are men who are a sign I'm going to stop here for a second. So God is, you know, has cleansed Joshua and he tells them, I want you to listen very, very, very carefully, Joshua, because you are the high priest. You are the, the highest spiritual um, authority in the nation. In the nation, it's supposed to be a blessing to all the other nations. So make sure that you listen very well. And to make sure that you are hearing this properly, it's not just you, Joshua, that I want to listen very carefully, but also the, the other ones that are sitting before you. The expression sitting before you in the scripture kind of talks about um, relationship of, of authority, if you will. So these were the other spiritual leaders, the other priests that were together with Joshua. And God says, I want you guys to hear very, very, very careful because you are the gatekeepers for the spiritual truth that comes to the nation and 
that nation is supposed to mediate the message to the entire world. So listen carefully. God says, I don't want you to miss it. And here's the message. God is saying, for behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, verse 9, the stone that I laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts. I'm going to stop here for a second. It's a very compact statement with a lot of significance. God says, um, I will bring, I will bring, God will bring my servant. Now the expression, my servant, is a very, if you will, loaded expression um, in, in the Hebrew Bible. Isaiah, the prophet, dedicated the second half of his book to the servant of God. So Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 53 describe the servant of God. And as we look at those passages, we see that the servant is not, not just a mere person, but he has divine attributes. And there is a purpose for his coming. His purpose for coming is to bring people to the living God. And the branch, the branch is also uh, similarly a very, 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 um, you know, loaded with meaning, a name that is loaded with meaning. We first meet the branch in Isaiah chapter 4. And we read there about the branch of God. We then meet him again in Jeremiah 23. We're going to read the, uh, those verses in a little bit where he's called the righteous branch. In Jeremiah 33, he is called David's righteous branch, whose name is the Lord, Yahweh, our righteousness. So the branch is also one of the titles of the Messiah, revealing a lot of details about him. He's from the descendancy of David, and he is, and in fact, we read also in, uh, uh, it was in the passage that we read from Isaiah 11, that he's called the root, which is uh, uh, close to that in meaning. And he is of divine origin. This branch is Yahweh, the Lord, our righteousness. So my servant, the branch, is coming. I want to make sure that you, the spiritual leaders, do not miss this. And he continues to say, in verse 9, for behold, the stone that I've laid before Joshua. Now, the stone is also a very uh, loaded, if you will, messianic title. Okay, we, we meet the stone in Isaiah 28. In verse 16, God is saying, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it, in the stone, will not be disturbed, will not perish. So the stone is something that we should believe upon. In Psalm 118, we read about the stone which the builders has rejected that has become the chief cornerstone. We read about that verse is quoted in the New Testament as well. So God says to the spiritual leaders, he says, make sure you do not miss the Messiah upon his coming. It continues to some great details. It says in, uh, further down in verse 9, he says, God says, Behold, I will engrave its inscription. Now try to imagine 
a very large stone kind of in the middle of this room. And I'm not a stonemason. I don't know if you are, but let's think together. If you want to engrave a stone, how do you do it? How do you do it? You take a chisel, you take a hammer, and you engrave the stone. Now remember, the stone, the branch, it's a messianic title. God is saying here, I'm going to engrave the Messiah. And note the result. God says at the end of verse 9, And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day or a single day. The result of this engraving is going to be that sins are going to be removed once and for all in a single event, in a single day. You know, in the Mosaic Covenant, never, ever, ever, ever were sins removed. Even David, King David, has prayed, blessed is he the one whose sins are covered. Sins were covered. It's kind of like a credit card. You know, when my kids were young, you know, they would tell me, oh, dad, get me this, get me that. And sometimes I would say, well, I don't, I don't think that's something we would like to do right now. And they said, oh, what's the problem? I mean, it doesn't matter if you don't have money. Just use your credit card. And I was like, no, well, when you do that, eventually there is a payday. You have to, dad has to pay for the credit card. And that's the same kind of thing. You know, when the sins were covered, it's the credit card pay. It's on the statement. Somebody has to come one day and remove the sins. And this description is a very, you know, living description of the, the role and goal of the Messiah. Of course, we from a historical perspective have the advantage of looking back and said, this is what happened in Jerusalem, outside the city of Jerusalem, in Golgotha, almost 2,000 years ago. When the Messiah himself, who knew no sin, was made sin on our behalf and was nailed to the cross and gave his life instead as a substitute, a sacrifice for ours. And this is described here in such detail that is truly breathtaking. And again, I don't want you to miss that, the, the, the context. God says to the spiritual leaders of Israel, make sure you get this. Now we know, and of course I'm, I'm very displeased to say this, it hurts me deeply, but our, we as a nation, the Jewish people as a nation on a national level, our spiritual leaders have not heed this calling. And as a nation, we have rejected the Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, on his first coming. Now, there's always been individuals from among our people, like the apostles and, and so on, and throughout church history, by the way, and even today, that are believers in Jesus, but not, in a, as a national, not on a national scale. This day is coming, but it's not now. But, you know, something interesting about God, you know, we serve the God of the second chance. Because, and I think we can see it in our lives, I don't know if you thought about it this way, God tends to work in our life in a circular way. Think about, uh, think about Jonah. God tells him, Jonah, I want you to go do something. And Jonah says, I don't want to, I'm running away. Now, you know, God never forces any one of us to walk after him. So he told Jonah, you want to run? Go ahead, run. You know, it happens to all of us. And then uh, Jonah runs. Now, the running away can be for a year, two years, a hundred years, 2,000 years in the case of the nation of Israel. But eventually, God always sends a whale that chews us up and spits us out. We stand before God and we say, 
here I am. What will you have me do? And God says, oh, I told you. Remember, told you. Go to Nineveh. Whatever your Nineveh is. So, you know, the gospel that started in Israel, surrounded the world from the West, is coming back to Israel. And the messiahship of Jesus, as it were, as it were is a big issue in the Jewish community today. Now, when that happens, when you accept Jesus, verse 10 tells us it's going to be that everyone is sitting under his vine and fig tree, an expression of peace, of joy, of enjoyment. And I want to connect this um, briefly with another passage. And there I'll stop, I think. We'll see. Mark, I mean, do desperate signs when I need to absolutely stop <laughs> a couple of minutes. So Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23, uh, be very brief, you know, um, uh, this is written before, before the, the first diaspora uh, or during it, and God is talking to the shepherds. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about, about that much, but the whole imagery of sheep and shepherd, uh, shepherds is, is something very prevalent throughout the Bible. And mostly when he talks about sheep, he talks about us. Um, I'm, I didn't grow up on a farm, so I don't know much about sheep, but I did some reading. And let me tell you, it's not a compliment. Um, now, when I, was, when I was in grad school, um, we did actually have an opportunity. We were learning about the human brain. And, um, you know, we had, forgive the, well, I'll skip the description for you guys. But anyway, I'll just say this. We have, they wanted to give us, the school wanted us to see a brain and dissect it. And uh, they didn't have enough human brains. So they brought, I kid you not, sheep brain. And the reasoning was that sheep brain, structurally speaking, is very, very, very similar to the human brain. I was kind of dumbstruck to hear that, thinking about all those passages. I mean, they miss a big part that we have and sheep don't. So, I mean, we do have an advantage there. But um, three things are striking about sheep that I've learned about. One... Sheep cannot find, cannot find pasture on their own. I mean, they just can't find it. They'll get lost. They have very poor eyesight. So they can't. Once they found it, I mean, the shepherd takes them, um, they cannot protect themselves. So if there's a, you know, a wolf or a bad animal, whatever, they cannot protect themselves. The only protection they have is to huddle together. It doesn't completely protect them, but, it, you know, they can't fight back. And the third characteristics of sheep is that they can't find their way home. So, I mean, they're out there in the evening, but they just can't. I mean, that's why they have to have, the sheep have to have a shepherd. And so when we read in the Bible that we are like sheep have gone astray, this is what it means. And when he talks about Jesus being our great shepherd, this is what he means. He's the one we should follow. His voice is the one we should recognize because he's going to bring us to the pasture, protect us, and bring us back. Now, with all this as background, Jeremiah 23, God is talking uh, here primarily in the immediate context is the nation of Israel. And he's talking to the shepherds, the gatekeepers, if you will, the spiritual leaders of Israel. And he's saying, verse 1, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Now, note what God said he's going to do. Behold, I will attend to you, 
for the evil of your doing, says the Lord, but I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them and, driv and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set, and this is the interesting part, verse 4, I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a righteous shepherd. The king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. What does that mean? God says, there is a day coming that because of the blindness of the leaders, the people have gone astray. But there is a day coming, God says, I'll send my shepherd, the branch of David, the Messiah himself. And in his day, I'm going to raise new shepherds. And those new shepherds are going to attend to my flock. And again, this is a spiritual uh, context. So I'll finish with a story that relates to this. True story. So this happened probably 18 months ago. Uh, we get a phone call. We get a phone call. There's a guy on the line. And he says, um, my five-year-old son is very ill in the hospital. I want you to come pray for him. So we did. You know, we went that evening. And what we've learned is that this young boy had uh, a deadly virus that was eating the cranial nerves in his brain. And as a result, he was blinded. And the doctors told that the parents, they said, you have to operate him and remove the, the cranial system, which will cause the boy to be blind, but at least he'll survive. Otherwise, you know, the virus can, um, uh, can eat the entire brain and, you know, he'll die. And the parents said that in their dismay, it's actually a, a fairly religious Jewish family. They started calling their spiritual leaders, the rabbis, and some of them well-known rabbis in Israel. And they never got a reply. It's all the same day. So finally, the brother of the father, the, the uncle of the little boy, said, well, I've been watching those videos of those Messianic Jews. They talk about God. Maybe we should call them. So that's how they call us. So we spent some time. The grandparents are there. The entire family there. And, um, you know, it was very simple. We... Just prayed for the little boy. I mean, nothing, nothing immediate happened. The next day, you know, they did another uh, x-ray or MRI. And uh, the doctor comes to the dad. He says, I don't know what to tell you. I'm, I'm not sure what happened here. But uh, the virus is gone. I'm not sure what you guys did. But it's gone. I can't explain it. We need to recheck it. I don't want to give you false hope. But that's what it looks like. So they rechecked. And that was true. And the boy is starting to regain his sight. So the father calls us again. Long story short, for time's sake, I'll just say the father, the mother, the uncle have all become followers of Jesus as a result of that. Now, do, do you see how compelling this is? I mean... I hear people all the time, you know, behind the walls of these country clubs since we live in Coachella Valley, Palm Springs area. 
yeah, I talked to my friends, and we've been working on them, but they just, you know, they just can't, they just can't buy into it. it. Just happened thousands of years ago. They don't know how, you know. I just don't even know how you guys believe in something so ancient. And one religion is good as the other. Really? Name me another religion that has this many prophetic words written thousands of years in advance and being fulfilled down to, as if you've seen this view in Zechariah 3 and Jeremiah 23 as well, this down to staggering detail, staggering detail. Now, that's compelling. That's radically compelling. Uh, Chuck, would you mind coming up here real quick? Uh, Chuck is the uh, chief operating officer of One for Israel in the United States. We now have 10 employees uh, that are there. Chuck, say hello to everybody. That's live, I think. Greetings. Greetings. It's great to see you all, and uh, we're glad and so appreciate you, Jeff, and this church. And you're, uh, we feel welcomed because you guys love Israel and you love Jesus and you love the ministry. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, brother. So I want you to see this man, and Ares will be out front afterwards. Hang around. We're going to be here to the bitter end. If you have a question or you want to talk to either one of these guys, um, you know, uh, actually, you, I don't know when you have to leave. You may have to bolt, but he's got to go back and catch a flight. Got to catch a flight because he didn't live here, as you know. So he's got to catch flight. So here's what I want to do. I want to close with this uh, video. Uh, it was shot in Israel. Uh, we played it last year when he was here. Uh, I think it's powerful. I just want you to let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And then we're going to close in prayer. And I'm going to have Eros coming back up. And uh, maybe uh, Pastor Mike and Pastor Paul come up and pray for uh, Israel College of the Bible. And then he's going to pray for us. But just let the Holy Spirit grab you. He is operating. He's in the midst of the Middle East. I know you're not hearing that message, but you're hearing it here, and it's right, and God, and this is early innings. It's a privilege for us to be part of this, and Jerry Ferris and Lynn, Jerry's on the board as well. We love serving in this way with these kinds of partners. I think it's going to benefit us, and I pray we benefit them in very profound ways over the coming years. Let's, let's worship together.